Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Christine Granville was Britain's first female special agent of World War II, and, as a colleague said, quote, with women like that around, there was nothing to do but bottle up one's incompetence and go through with it. Today I'm going to be talking today with Claire Mully about her new biography, The Spy Who Loved, The Secrets and Lives of Christine Granville. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, gosh, okay, well, I'm a biographer. I've got two books behind me. The first was a biography of the woman who founded Save the Children, who was this fantastic, strident Edwardian woman who um, who didn't like children very much. I loved that about her, that lovely irony. Um, and that won the Daily Mail Biographers Club Prize, which was fantastic. And that enabled me to go on and do my second book, which came out uh, last year, which is called The Spy Who Loved. And it's a biography of Christina Scarbeck, a.k.a. Christine Granville, who was Britain's first female special agent of the Second World War. And another fantastic story. So what sources were most helpful to you when writing this book? I'm so sorry, I didn't catch that. Uh, what sources were most helpful when writing this book? Right, okay. Um, well, lots. I love doing the research for it. So I do like going back to all the primary sources. Obviously, there's lots of archives in the UK because she was a special agent here for the British. Um, so a lot of the files have been coming out, not that uh, quite recently, um, at the National Archives. And they've got a personal file on her with all sorts of details in. And I managed to get under the Freedom of Information Act. I applied for various other uh, documents, such as all the court papers and police records surrounding the trial that followed her murder. Um, so that was absolutely fascinating. But I also went on the road doing what Antonia Fraser calls optical research, where you actually go out there. So, um, of course, I went to France, and I was lucky enough, I managed to find a couple of um, French veterans from the resistance in the war, because I went to a memorial event they hold every year. And a couple of them remembered Christine. One of them told me about seeing her having an aperitif in a cafe before she swung her leg over the back of a motorbike and zoomed into battle at the Battle of Vercors, which is quite extraordinary. Um, but mostly, of course, I went out to Poland, spent quite a bit of time there with a Polish friend who was translating for me. And uh, we went to all sorts of, you know, state archives, things like the National Institute of Remembrance and stuff like that. But I also was lucky enough to have the opportunity to meet a number of people who who had known Christine or whose family and friends had known Christine in the 1950s or during the war. Um, so I met the niece of um, her soulmate and lover and colleague in arms, Andrzej Kowarski, um, called Maria Pienkowska. And she brought all sorts of things, letters and photographs. And she also brought Christine's jewellery. So I sat there and tried on her necklaces and bracelets. That was rather lovely. Couldn't get her bangle on. She must have very slender arms. <laughs> um, and I... Actually, I had a funny one because I was staying in a flat that was lent to me by the son of Count Vladimir Ledohovsky. And Vladimir had been another of Christine's lovers and colleagues. He was a courier for the Polish um, government in exile and the resistance in Poland. And his son uh, lent me his flat to stay in 
which is in Warsaw's old town, right on the old square. I mean, of course, that was all completely destroyed during the Warsaw Uprising and the German retreat and the Soviet entry into Poland. Um, but it's been rebuilt according to the old plans, and it's absolutely beautiful. So I was staying in this amazing building right on the old square, and uh, I was meeting Maciek every morning. He was staying with an aunt or something in the city, and off we go to various archives. And um, one morning I came down and got out of the flat, and a Wehrmacht officer in full uniform came charging across the road at me, his various colleagues standing, shouting, and, um, and it was absolutely terrifying. And then he, he arrived at me, and he, he had a machine gun, and he pushed the perforated barrel of his machine gun into my neck. And, um, and then I realized he was shouting in Polish, not German. The whole thing was very odd, and I just thought, I've become so obsessed with this story, I've lost my marbles, you know. <laughs> um, but then Maciek came running up, and he said, oh, there was, a, there was a little poster attached on the side of the wall, and it said please don't come out of these flats between 9 and 10 because we're filming for a Polish World War II drama. Oh, good grief. And uh, I'd, I'd walked out in the middle of a take and they weren't very pleased about it. So, <laughs> But even that um, kind of gave me a bit of information, really, because, you know, I knew that, it, you know, really it must be something like that because it was 2012, after all. But Christine was part Jewish and she was a British spy working in occupied Poland. She was arrested more than once and she never lost her cool. You know, I was nearly crying. It was very frightening. But she always just kept calm and talked her way out of it. So even that taught me something. Yeah. So it was fantastic. I could go on forever, so I better stop. But... Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Um, I wonder if you could give us, if you could begin just by giving us kind of a quick overview of where she came from. Yeah, sure. Um, Christina was born in, well, I believe she was born in Warsaw. Um, at that part of Poland, um, at the time she was born um, in 1908, was actually um, part of the Russian Empire at the time. Um, but she saw herself very much as Polish, not Russian, of course. I mean, her baptism certificate is, is actually written in Russian and uses the Russian Orthodox calendar. Um, but um, she saw her, she was born on, actually on Labor Day the um, traditional socialist or communist holiday, the 1st of May, um, to this family of patriotic aristocrats who belonged to a company, uh, to, sorry, who belonged to a country that didn't even exist again until she was 10 years old. So I love the sort of confusions and deceptions, if you like, that surround her childhood and her birth. Mm -hmm. It seems very appropriate. Um, but she, uh, her father was a Polish aristocrat, Count um, Count Jerzy Skarbek, um, and her mother was uh, came from a very wealthy Jewish family, um, Polish Jewish family, the, the Goldfeders, who had a bank, um, and her name was Stefania Goldfeder. Um, but she converted to Catholicism before the marriage. But I think, you know, in one hand, Christine was brought up with all this luxury and money, and she was horses to ride, and she was absolute star of her father's eye. Um, and he brought her up with a lot of freedom and adoration. But on the other hand, because her mother had been born Jewish, she was never really fully accepted in the higher echelons of Polish society, um, which unfortunately had some anti-Semitism at the time. And so I think she was always trying to fight her corner. You know, she always wanted to be center stage and prove a point. And it was war that kind of subverted the usual structures of things that enabled this aristocratic woman to play a leading role. So how did she become involved in intelligence? Okay. Um, when the Germans invaded Poland in September 1939, precipitating Second World War, Christina wasn't actually at home. She was with her second husband already um, in southern Africa. Her husband was another amazing character, um, and he was a diplomat out there. 
So when they heard the news, they um, they were you know shocked, as many people were very surprised, weren't anticipating this. They turned around and decided to come back home and, and help their country in whichever role they could. Um, but they, they got to South Africa and got a passenger ship, but of course it took an awful long time. They had to go in convoy because of the conditions and so on. So um, in fact, there's an awful story in her husband's um, another year's day, um, in his memoirs, he, which are not published, but I managed to get a hold of the manuscript. He describes the moment on the boat where the apparently the captain had a notice board for messengers for all the passengers. And at one one morning, they saw two messages put up, and the first one said, "Lost a, a pair of ladies' pink panties," and then underneath it said, "Lost Warsaw." And that was how they found out that their capital had fallen. It's just appalling. He said it was, you know, yeah. English dry sense of humour, but not great. Anyhow, so they arrived back. By the time they got to Southampton, Poland had fallen. So Christine knew she couldn't, you know, there was no point in going back and hunting herself over. So she, um, within, you know, incredible speed, she is banging on the door of the supposedly secret headquarters of the British Secret Services and not really volunteering, more sort of demanding to be taken on. And I think they, they kind of laughed at her because, you know, here she was. She was a foreigner, not British, wanting to work for the British Special Services. Well, that didn't happen. She was part Jewish, you know, volunteering to go into Nazi-occupied Poland. And above all, she was a woman, which was unheard of. Um, she was the first woman the British employed two years before any other woman was considered for this kind of a role. Also our longest-serving female special agent, actually, and one of the highest um, honoured um, with medals afterwards. Um, but she had she had all these skills. She had the language skills. She was an expert skier, and her plan was to ski over the mountains across the borders. Um, and before the war, just for kicks, when she'd been at the skiing resort in Poland, of Zakopane, which is a terribly nice skiing resort, um, she got a bit bored because she was that kind of girl. And so she decided to smuggle cigarettes over the border just for a laugh. So she knew all the smuggling routes. So she had or everything she needed to do an excellent job. And that they took her on. They realized that this was a fantastic opportunity. And uh, what she did was smuggle in propaganda and money to the fledgling Polish resistance groups and then bring back to the Allies um, information, radio codes, um, radio code books, and information in microfilm, which she hid inside her leather jug, uh, inside her leather gloves, and then took that back across the borders and gave it back to the British and, and in fact, the Poles as well, who she tried to connect with in Budapest. Mm. So that's how she started off. So what was the attitude of other intelligence officials towards her? Well, yes, it's a very interesting question. I mean, the British never... I mean, they never really knew how to place her or indeed many of the other women that worked for them. Um, And there's an awful, you know, she did face quite a lot of sexism, I would say, during her career, um, which was quite appalling at times. Um, But she also had this other issue because she was very much in between things. She spent her life in between. Um, So she worked for the British. In her heart, I think, she was fighting for Poland. Of course, we were allies at that point. Um, But by the time she was employed by the British and then placed in Budapest from which to go over the mountains and back, um, she gets in touch with the Polish resistance who were just starting to get established. And she volunteered before the Polish government in exile was set up or she would have gone to them. But now the Poles are saying, well, you're working for the British. Why should we share our information with you when, you know, they could trade it with the British for, you know, for whatever else they needed. But to give it to her and just have information handed over seemed to them less than helpful. Um, But from her point of view, she felt the British at that point formed the strongest uh, force against the invading 
um, Nazi Wehrmacht divisions. So she was working for Poland, but through the British. So she was really treated with some suspicion by both sides, unfortunately. And there was one point where she's had this amazing journey through Poland with Andrzej Kowalski, her fellow agent. And they've been doing work as they go in in Belgrade, in Yugoslavia, and then on in um, uh, in Hungary, in Sofia. They hand over this very important microfilm to the British. Then they go on, they spend some months working in Turkey, in Istanbul, and then in Ankara as well. And eventually they make their way through Palestine and so on. And this is in the spring of 1941 when many of these countries are falling, you know, just weeks and once days after they've left. And they finally arrive at the safety of the British base in Cairo. And it's been this incredible journey. And she's expecting sort of, you know, oh, well done. But they completely cold shoulder her and put her on ice. And it turns out the reason is that they were investigating her for being a German double agent. I think it seemed the only possible explanation for why she'd survived. Um, and also she's talking to some very independent Polish resistance groups rather than the official resistance group and um, because they won't um, communicate with her at this point. And some of those very independent groups, I think possibly rightly recognised that the Soviet Union was a threat as well as Germany. And so they're playing the game on both sides, if you like, and her association there gave her quite a black mark for some time. Um, but she is, of course, in the end, um, when she's handed over this amazing microphone, when they see what's on that, that she's vindicated and they take her on. And then she works in two different theatres, the war after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Andrei Kaversky. Uh, so what was her partnership with him like? Well, when they, I mean, they they did, I think, their most brilliant work together was in that first arena we were talking about earlier, when they're both based in Budapest, and she's doing work across the borders. Now, do you know much about Andrew? Do you want me to talk about him? Yeah, you can go ahead and talk about him. Okay, well, Andrew Kowalski, um, he had been a brilliant horseman in his youth, and Christine had actually met him in her father's stables when they were both children. Their fathers were um, friends together. Um, but anyhow, they re-met later on. He'd been a brilliant horseman. But unfortunately, um, sometime prior to the war, a friend of his had come to a shoot on his family estate and had accidentally shot his leg off below the knee. So Andre had one prosthetic leg, but it didn't let him hold him back, really. He couldn't um, ride a horse particularly well now, um, and he couldn't ski brilliantly. But he joined what was called the Black Brigade, which was Poland's first mechanized division. And they were called that because they wore these black leather jackets. And um, having seen a few photos of him, I think he did look very nice in a black leather jacket, really. Um, anyhow, and when the polls came in, there was a wonderful story that Paddy Lee Thurmer used to tell before he died, sadly, last year. Um, and he said that Andrew was leading his unit um, against the approaching Panzer divisions. And there was a loud explosion at one point. And when the cloud of dirt and smoke subsided, the Germans had fallen back. And one of the unit came running down the hill and saw Andre pinned underneath a vehicle that was being upturned by this explosion. And he's shouting out, someone get a medic, get a doctor, Andre is hurt. And Andre just turned to him and said, I can't do the accent, I'm afraid, the lovely Polish accent. He said, I don't need a doctor, you blizzering idiot. I just need a blacksmith. <laughs> because he's, he's just pinned down by the metal part of his mm-hmm. false leg and he carried a spare. He just needed a hand to get his leg off and put the new one on. So um, so he was actually awarded the Fatuti Militari for his work, but I think it's Poland's highest award for valour. Um, so he was absolutely, you know, not set back at all by his injury. But eventually his unit are pushed across the border and uh, he's interned under the Geneva Convention in an internment camp in um, uh, just beside Budapest. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and then there's a wonderful story that apparently at one point he saw um, an unguarded Opel Olympia car in the camp. And these were sort of the car of choice for discerning Wehrmacht officers. <laughs> so um, he's fought two lovely horses for a love of cars and he's quite a good mechanic. So he went, he goes over and I don't know, hot wires it or whatever he does and uh, starts up the engine and drives himself towards the camp exit. But then apparently he changed his mind and drove back in and collected the rest of his unit and drove them all out. Um and uh, most of them go off to rejoin the Polish forces in northern Africa. But his unit leader says that you've got a bit of a gift for this. And he is tasked with setting up one of the early escape routes and getting anyone he can out of the internment camps to rejoin the Allied forces. Um, and also putting on you know, people like downed pilots or whoever um, on the escape routes back out to, to rejoin the war effort. So, um, so that's what he's doing in Budapest. And there's a wonderful story that Andrew himself used to tell that he was recounting his adventures in the Black Brigade to this kind of crowd of adoring girls in the basement of a smoky Budapest bar when he said the door opened and a girl walked in. She was slim and sunburnt with brown hair and eyes and a kind of crackling vitality seemed to emanate from her, he said. And and that, of course, was Christine. And before the night was out, she had invited him out for dinner. And they're soon not just lovers, but they're also colleagues in arms. And, And I think Theirs was her most fulfilling emotional relationship as well. They really are soulmates as well. Although um, she has many relationships, I think this is the most important one for her. Right. And um, and they do amazing work. You know, Christine will help Andre. She's got all these false papers. The British have set her up with an identity as a, a French journalist, um, which is actually quite you know realistic. That would have made sense. So she's got various papers that can open doors and things. Um, so she helps on the escape line. Um, and the British estimate they help to take out, mainly Andrew, but together they help to take out several thousand people. So that on its own is an extraordinary achievement and a great contribution to the war effort. Um, you know, in the Battle of Britain, for example, the Polish pilots, that um, there were two squadrons of Polish pilots, and they got the highest number of kills of any squadron. Um, and they brought out a number of these pilots. So um, very useful work. And Andre used to help Christine with her smuggling. So apparently he whittled out a hole in the wooden part of his leg um, and used to hide information in that. You couldn't make it up. It's just marvellous. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they, a fantastic, fantastic partnership they had. Yeah. Um, so what were her espionage skills and weaknesses? I know you mentioned a hatred of bicycles, which I thought was fascinating. Yes, I like that Yeah, well. what were her particular gifts? What was her area of expertise? Well, she had lots of things. I mean... She had natural abilities that were very useful. So she spoke, um, she obviously she spoke Polish, she had a tiny bit of Russian, she had a little bit of German. She spoke absolutely fluent French, which is why she's um, given her identity as being a French journalist. Um, she learns English, she spends some time learning a bit of Italian. So she's got a lot of language skills. Um, she's an expert skier. She knows the smuggling routes. She knows the Gorals, the people that live in the mountains who will help her across the mountains and so on. And she's got in um, Warsaw and in Poland, she's got fantastic contacts as well. Um, so all of those things are very important. But then as the war progresses, the British train her as well. And she becomes, in fact, one of our most highly trained female agents. Um, so she's trained in the use of guns and explosives. Um, she doesn't like that. She always said that guns were too noisy, which is quite amusing. Um, the Imperial War Museum does have um, what they claim to be her gun, um, which is a Polish Visradom gun. Um, yeah, I mean, it could well be her gun. I'm not entirely sure of their provenance on it. Um, she's also trained in parachuting. She becomes one of the few female agents and her parachute wings. Um, she is 
uh, trained in wireless operating, coding and morph as well. Um, she's really sent out to be a courier um, later on in the war, but this is so that she can also work as a wireless transmitter as well, should the need arise, and she does a little bit of that. Um, and we've got her wireless set, actually. It's in the um, Publishing Student Sikorsky Museum in London. Incredibly heavy, I've got to say. So imagine carrying that around, pretending you've got nothing in your basket but a few apples, you know. Um, and also she was warned that wireless operators, in, she was being trained to be dropped into southern France behind enemy lines. And she was tra- warned that wireless operators could expect to be um, tracked because the Germans had these tracking vans and they could track down the signal if you were on for more than 10 minutes or whatever. And so they could track her and probably catch her, arrest her, interrogate her and kill her within six weeks. That's what the expectancy was. And yet she volunteered to go in. By then, that was her third theatre of the war. Um, anyhow, she actually she didn't enjoy all this coding and wireless stuff. Anyhow, she was sort of desk-bound, um, you know, that kind of clerical stuff. She hated all that. But what she excelled in, the course that she excelled in, and they said on it that she was brave as a lion, um, was a course in silent killing, which is killing just with um, a rope or a commando knife. She had a knife, which we've got still, which has a leather sheath. It would have been strapped to her leg. Um, or killing with your bare hands, and apparently that is what she excelled in. Um, although I have no record that she actually killed anyone in the war, but we can't completely write it off. Um, so, yes, those those are her strengths. But, you know, I think what her real strength actually was, you know, I, I don't have ev- any evidence that she killed anyone. I don't believe she did. I think her... her greatest asset was her brain because she's incredibly quick-witted so she's she's very cool um she flourishes under moments of intense stress so when the rest of us turn to mush that's when she comes into her element she almost overdoes it sometimes um she's very you know she's quick thinking she comes up with a good idea and there's so many examples i could give you some if you want where it's her and not the men that thinks of the 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 means to get them out of arrest or um, get them thrown out during interrogation at one point. Um, she rescues three officers, a British, a French, uh, a British and two French officers in southern France at one point by storming in and demanding their release. And she's worked out a story um, that you know, is, is successful. I don't want to give it all away, but, you know, amazing. So really, she's very compelling, she's very magnetic, and she's got this really quick wit. And in incredible courage, real blunt courage. So it's those things that really make her so successful. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a broad question, which doesn't have a definitive answer. But as her biographer, what do you think drove her love of at veteran risk? Was it just a love of Poland and the commitment to the cause? Or was there something deeper? I think it's very rare that anyone does anything from just one motive, right. don't you? Yeah, um, yeah, There were multiple, multiple reasons. I mean, yes, she was a deeply patriotic Pole um, and was fighting for her country. And anyway, that's, I mean, well, you know, the book is called The Spy Who Love. And what I mean by that, I'm trying to encapsulate the things she loved that she was fighting for that motivated her. So Christine was a very passionate woman. She loved life in its greatest sense. She loved Poland. She loved adventure and adrenaline. Um, she loved danger. You know, the British minister in um, Budapest said that she had a pathological love of danger. Um, and she, you know, all these times, you know, when she's being arrested and so on, Andrew is panicking, thinking, oh, my goodness. And he looks at her and he said, it's as though she's going on holiday. You know, and then he says, when they're about to be arrested, he said, she, he looked at her and it, she looked as if she was smiling, as if she was going to a cocktail party. You know, that's when she clicks in. So she does love that adrenaline. Um, she loves men. She has two husbands. She has numerous lovers, and they love her. Um, but above all, the thing I think ultimately um, was her, her main motivation was she loved freedom. And, and that, I mean, both 
<clears throat> excuse me, freedom and independence for her country, Poland, but also freedom for herself. Mm. And as a woman, um, part Jewish before the war, her, her freedoms were restricted in many ways, and she was fighting for freedom for herself and her country. Mm-hmm. This is a far less serious note, but you, um, several times okay. in the book, it emerges that she has an unusual affinity with dogs, which I thought was really charming. Well, it is nice. Bugs. I think all yeah. animals. Yeah. I mean, someone told me that she, she flirted with animals, that she flirted with men, mm-hmm. and they, they all responded, whatever species, you know. Um, so, yes, there are quite a few photographs of her with dogs and, and cats as well. She obviously does love them. Um, but there are these wonderful stories. And um, there's one where she's in France, um, where there's... Uh, uh, there's a German patrol. They're going through the countryside and there's a German patrol coming. So they hide in some bushes. But unfortunately, this patrol have got a trained uh, dog, which is, you know, it's trained to sniff people out, to catch them. Um, and it's trained to bite and break necks, you know. So um, this dog, unfortunately, finds Christine hidden in the bushes off away from the road a bit. And um, she you know, talks to it in Polish and, you know, gives it some affection. And she's also quite smart because she's been using goose fat to, because she's getting blisters on her heels from all this tramping about so she rubs her fingers on her heels and gets this goose fat on her fingers and gives her fingers to the dog who's you know delighted to have this lovely delicious stuff to lick off her fingers and they form this bond and so the dog actually um i don't know if you can say it switched alliances um, not <laughs> mentally like that but you know it, it comes over and stays with her quietly and it, apparently it refused to leave her side for ages and the germans just lose this highly trained animal and comes on their side and that's just one example there are several in the book i just think that's lovely yeah it really is um, so what was her role in the Battle of Vercors? Right. Um, well, uh, Christine at this point is acting as number two, really, to the leader of the um, British SOE who are helping to coordinate the French resistance in the area. His name is Francis Commerce. He's not a terribly good-looking man, I've got to say. <laughs> sort of like a young George Clooney, really. Marvellous. Anyhow, so, um, you know, thrown together in these situations of great danger, the two of them are, are soon lovers as well, you know. Um, and uh, and Francis is there helping to coordinate. Um, well, they've both been coordinating the drop of arms and supplies um, from the British by aeroplane, you know, in these sort of long containers that are dropped down by parachute to them. And they've been working on that. So they've been supplying the French cells of the resistance. But the Battle of Vecor is this awful, awful tragedy in the history, very important um, event in the history of the French resistance. When... Um, uh, not backed by the British, but the, the French decide for various complicated reasons and with quite a lot of justification, I feel, that they should declare independence in that part of France. Um, but unfortunately, it turns out it's too early and they haven't got the supplies, they haven't got the backup um, and the Germans decide that this is too much, this must be made an example of and they come in extremely heavily with gliders to the top of the plateau and forces coming in, you know, armoured forces coming in from the bottom and unfortunately it's quite a terrible massacre with many lives lost, including the civilians and there are some, you know, horrendous examples of German atrocities, well, um, Nazi atrocities at this point um, in the villages around here, really. Stuff that means that I can't let my daughter read the book yet. And, um, Yes, and Christine's role is in there. I mean, I, she is working, she's taking messages between the different units for Francis. She's helping in the radioing desperately for more. And, you know, we've got a log of the messages they sent demanding more supplies, demanding the bombing of the German airbase nearby, which doesn't happen. Um, and you know, increasingly they're saying, you're betraying us by not doing stuff. And she is helping with the radio transmissions here as well. Um, so, and generally being a sort of in-between courier between different groups. Um, so that's her role. 
And she was given the OBE for specifically for that battle, correct? For her role in, in that? Uh, for her work in France. Okay. Um, and that is one of the things that she did in France. But she actually did um, amazing. I mean, the work that really made her most legendary was the work that she undertook in France. So there is her involvement in the Battle of Vercors. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also she... Uh, single-handedly climbed a mountain where she knew there was a very strategic German garrison on a path in the Alps. And um, she happened, well, she happened to know, she had researched and investigated and discovered that there were about 63 um, Poles working for the Germans in that garrison who'd been recruited, you know, under duress, um, you know, with under force, with threats to their family and so on. Um, and she climbs up carrying, you know, red and white scarves the colours of Poland. So had she have been seen by any of the German guards up there, she'd have been shot immediately. Um, there was no way she could pretend she was just you know, a French peasant woman carrying these colours that she was. But it, she was doing it to catch the attention of the Poles. And then she spoke to them for some time in their native language and persuaded them that they should defect at the appropriate moment, which they did, taking their small arms down, down and taking the, the, um, the blocks out of the bigger weapons so they couldn't be used. Um, so she secured the defection of this this German garrison. It's amazing. She um, made the first connection between the French resistance on one side of the Alps and the uh, um, Italian partisans on the other side of the Alps. Um, she rescued Francis Kermertz, the leader um, in, in many ways of the resistance in that area, who was preparing um, the French resistance for the Allied liberation in the south of France. Um, he was a linchpin and he was due to be shot and she rescues him again single-handedly with two of his colleagues just hours before they're going to be shot. Um, So she did amazing work, and that was what she was given those awards for. And the French gave her the Croix de Guerre as well. Mm -hmm. So how did she find the transition to peace when the war was over? Yes, well, it was very difficult for so many people, of course, um, all the returning forces. I mean, this is a terrible period in our history. You know, violent crime goes up massively, and domestic violence is appalling, and there is huge unemployment. It's very difficult to resettle people. They weren't, um, they, there wasn't any counselling for shell shock or trauma or any of that stuff. And uh, and Christine is in a slightly worse position because she, of course, is Polish. I mean, there is a you know, fairly large Polish emigre society, of course, but because they can't go back to Poland, because during the Yalta negotiations, Poland is in effect handed over to Stalin and, and the communist, Soviet-backed communist regime in Poland. So she knows that she's she spent six years working for the Allies, and yet Poland, the first country of the Allies, if you like, is the only victorious country that finishes the war occupied by a foreign power. So, you know, this is an appalling situation for her. Um, the British give her these great honours, but they don't give her the awards that she would have valued most highly, which is ongoing work worthy of her service and abilities, or even British citizenship. So she's kind of left in Cairo, and she is given £100, which, you know, is not to be sniffed at in 1945. But she's left stateless. She's not given a a British passport, so she can't come to Britain. But equally, they know very well she can't go back. In fact, the British traded her name with the NKVD, which is the precursor of the KGB. So she would have been shot immediately had she have returned. In fact, her brother dies in the first year of the peace. Um, So eventually she does win British citizenship, but only because she fought for it. You know, a battle she shouldn't have had to fight, I think. Right. So it's a very horrendous time for her. And I think on top of all that, there is further difficulties. I mean, partly they won't continue employing her because... Um, because in, after 1946 and the Hotel David bomb, um, they, the British Special Services decide they're not going to employ anyone who they feel might have compromised loyalties um, towards the new Israel. Um, and of course, she 
is part Jewish and has various friends who are connected to the founding families of Israel, so they wouldn't take her on anyhow. But also, you know, she's a woman. And the memos at this point are just appalling. They talk about this annoying girl. This is a woman of in her 40s or late 30s at that point who has spent six years putting her life on the line for Britain and they dare to talk about it in those terms. You know, they offer a few secretarial jobs and when she doesn't want those because that's not at all her skills or expertise, they dismiss her. So, I mean, yes, it was very hard for her. She called the terrible piece at one point. Um, This is kind of turning us back toward process for a second, but people are often unreliable tellers of their own histories. And you mentioned in the book several times that she was kind of an embroiderer of stories, that she tweaked details like her age and her marital history. Um, As a biographer, how do you account for this? Yeah, it's so nice talking to someone who's read the book. Thank you for that. Um, how do I account for it? Well, I, I, I mean, yes, it caused me all sorts of consternation. You know, I mean, the, the whole thing is riddled with stories at different levels. So we have, you know, there's war propaganda telling stories and fabrications as well. We've got, you know, her birth certificate has two dates on it, neither of which is correct. It's written a language that wasn't her own language. You know, her death certificate, the only thing that's correct on it is the date and cause of death. Just about everything else is fabrication. Uh, so... Obviously, I had to look quite seriously at this because I am very committed to telling factual stories. And um, so I wanted to get my facts straight. So that's partly why I went out researching in country um, as much as possible. Um, But as I got more involved, I kind of realized various things. You know, one is that facts are very important. Don't get me wrong. I have worked very hard. And you can see by the number of footnotes to get my facts correct. Having said that, there are other truth isn't just about facts. There are other truths. You know, there are emotional truths and there are moral truths. And sometimes, you know, Christine might embellish a story and the facts would be wrong, but the moral truth behind it is very clear. Um, So I think you have to um, think about these things in interesting ways. And so what I decided to do was make storytelling, if you like, um, a bit of a theme, a thread that runs through the book as well. So I look at, you know, her father, um, when when she's a young girl at his knee, he's telling all these stories at dinner parties about the wonderful role of the Skarbek family in Polish history. So she learns the propaganda value of stories from knee high. Um, and then she uses stories in her work. And of course, as a special agent, this is, this is a great skill to be able to have. So, um, yeah, she tells tales to cover her tracks or hide the stations that she's been going on or where she's been traveling around Poland. Um, and the, the truth of the stories are still there. The information that of importance is still there, but perhaps the, the practical details have been changed or amended for very sensible reasons. And then sometimes she's just telling stories because they make good stories. And I, you know, I, she's a war heroine. I think we can allow her to tell a dinner party anecdote and embellish it somewhat. Um, but equally, that tells the truth. It tells the truth about her nature, the fact that she was a wonderful storyteller. And if you look at when she goes to rescue Francis Kamertz and the two other men from being shot, when she, she walks into their headquarters there and takes on the gymnasium, what saves him is her ability to tell a story. She threatens this officer with tales of the imminent Allied advance and how they're going to be soldiers there within hours. And if he doesn't show his loyalty to the Allies by releasing these men, then he will be hung from the nearest tree as, a, you know, someone by these forces that are coming forward. And she absolutely terrifies him. And, you know, the Allied advance doesn't happen for a couple of weeks. This man was under no pressure, but he fell for it. So her storytelling is vitally important throughout the book. And I try to, to use that to say, look, there are facts and there are truths and these things can be manipulated deliberately and unconsciously. And I thought that was quite an interesting theme to bring out. No, it really is. And it really establishes her storytelling as one of her espionage gifts as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what do you see as her legacy? Golly, well, I think, well, what I hope, um, if if this book 
can achieve anything is to re-establish her legacy, I suppose. And I hope it does two things. I hope it um, reminds people over here, or you know, wherever it's published, hopefully, um, of the role and, and you know the use and the abuse of Poland during the war. But also, I hope it helps to um, uh, rebalance the view on the effectiveness of female special agents. I, I think all too often women in the resistance are seen in these very tragically romantic terms. You know, perhaps the best known one in Britain is Charlotte Grey, who is a fictional character created by Sebastian Fawkes. And she is an SOE woman who gets dropped into France, but she's going to find her boyfriend. That woman wouldn't have got through the process to be an SOE in real life. And it's quite insulting to a lot of the women. You know, I've spoken with women from F section um, doing book tours. And uh, there was a wonderful woman called Noreen Reels who I've spoken with. And she said, you know, she felt quite insulted by that depiction because that's exactly not how it was done. Um, And even, you know, wonderful women who really were special agents like Violet Zabo or Odette got a fabulous, you know, their courage was absolutely extraordinary. And, and of course, Violet Zabo paid you know, she paid with her life. She had a little daughter and she sacrificed her life. Um, so, you know, they are rightly celebrated, but I think they're celebrated more for their courage than for their achievements. And Christine was a damn effective British agent. Well, agent working for the British. You know, she was incredibly effective. And there were a number of women like um, Pearl Corleone, um, who were, you know, incre- you know, Pearl led an army of several thousand men. Um, and their stories haven't been so well known. So I hope that this story, Christine's legacy, might be to help re-establish the view on the effectiveness of British, or effectiveness of female special agents. Um, really quickly before we end, we should probably mention that um, she's frequently seen as an influence for the Ian Fleming um, right. character. Yeah, what was your take yeah. on that? Well, um, some time ago, um, there was a biographer called Donald McCormack who wrote a biography of Ian Fleming. And in that, he said that Fleming, one of Fleming's lovers was Christine Granville. Um, and he backed it up uh, by quoting a letter. And now that letter's never been found. And that biographer, who is dead now, unfortunately, so we can't ask him, um, but it seems that he was... He shared one of Christine's tapes. He liked to tell a story and wouldn't necessarily stick to the facts all the time. So I did quite a lot of research into that. And I spoke to um, uh, Andrew Lysett, who is um, Fleming's more recent biographer. And, you know, he looked into it as well. And neither of us found anything that made us believe that this was true. I don't think that Ian Fleming ever met Christine. Having said that, they shared lots of friends in common. So, for example, Colin Govins was a very good friend of both of theirs. Um, he was the head of SOE. And Bill Stanley Moss. Uh, Bill was a very, he was in SOE. He was good friends with Christine and Petty Lee Firmer and so on. And he called his daughter Christine after Christine. Um, and he was very good friends with Ian Fleming. And he wrote um, uh, his famous novel, Ill Met by Moonlight. He wrote that in Goldeneye at Fleming's house. So, you know, there's, there's only two degrees of separation. So I don't think Fleming met her, but I... I'm sure he'd have heard about Christine. And in fact, I know he did because um, I found two different um, sort of gentlemen's magazines in America from 1953. And here is Fleming going on America to promote his new book called Christina Royale, which is the first of the Bond series. And um, somebody's asking him about his sources or his inspirations or whatever. And Ian Fleming comes out immediately and says, there was this amazing uh, female SOE agent called Christina Granville. She was so beautiful and she was so courageous and she was so brilliant at her job. So he clearly knows Christine's story. Mm. Um, and I believe he I believe he was inspired by Christine for the character of Esperlinde. I think that's very likely. Um, but I don't think that they knew each other and I'm sure they weren't lovers. But having said that, I just have to say that I think 
Christine is too important to just be remembered as some sort of man's fantasy figure in his novel. You know, mm-hmm. Christine is much more James Bond than a Bond girl. She was the person in the centre of the action. So I don't think we should belittle her too much by that story. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about the spy who loved. Do you, have any, okay? do you have any idea who you're going to be writing about next? Um, yes, I do, but I'm still writing the proposal, so I, and okay. I can only tell you that I think it's going to be very exciting. And strong women and war is going to be great. Good. Always a great subject. <laughs> I've been talking today with Claire Mully about the spy who loved the secrets and lives of Christine Granville. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.